0: Okay, first of all, welcome everybody. I know, beginning of a retreat, there can be many different emotions around. Sometimes relief, sometimes trepidation, uh, not quite knowing if you're still here for the first time what you're letting yourself in for. Um, well, it's going to be a journey throughout the week exploring these themes, basically around awareness, around mindfulness, and this path to awakening, which is. The, what the Buddhist path is all about. So I just want to say a few words. It's the first evening, so let's uh, get to bed reasonably early and start properly tomorrow morning. But I just want to say a few words this evening about the overall theme of the week and what we're going to be exploring during the week and a little bit about the precepts. One of the things that you've probably heard mentioned in the managers, the coordinators' talk is the five precepts, something that we adhere to when we're resident at the Gaia House, hopefully something you adhere to if you're outside living in the ordinary world. Um, one of the things I'm particularly keen on in regard to the precepts and understanding the precepts is that they get translated properly, because often they're not translated properly. You often find a list... Um, popular books on Buddhism often have a list It says you know, things like don't kill, don't steal, don't engage in sexual misconduct, don't lie, and don't take mind-altering substances. Um, it's kind of rather poor in the sense the way these are translated or the way they're interpreted, because actually they're much richer than that. Because what these precepts are that we ask you to adhere to in your time here but hopefully as you you go out into your ordinary lives you can take them out into ordinary life and use them as a template basically for ethical and moral investigation as much as anything else because the precepts, the way they're actually formulated in the original language um, which is Pali, one of the ancient Middle Indian languages is actually far richer than this kind of bare list of don't do this, don't do that Um, because they're all considered to be something called training precepts. It recognises that this path to awakening, which is obviously one of the themes, one of the main themes of the week, this path to awakening just doesn't come easily. In a sense, we have to train in it. Um, What we train in is awareness practices, kindness practices, generosity practices, all sorts of ways of training ourselves. And these moral precepts are also another way of training us in basically ethical and moral sensitivity in our lives. So, let me just kind of take the first one. I undertake a rule of training, is how it's couched in the original language. I undertake a rule of training to refrain from harming living beings. Now, that obviously implies don't kill. But it implies an awful lot more than don't kill. It means looking at all of our relationships of harm, And that can even mean self-harm in whatever ways we harm ourselves. So it becomes a whole way of investigating our harmful relationships with other beings, other creatures, with ourselves even. So it's much, much richer, as I say, than just this bold precept of don't kill. The next rule of training, I won't read them all out, I won't say them all in exactly the same form, but please hear it. I undertake a rule of training to refrain from taking what is not offered. Now, obviously, that means don't steal. But it means a lot more, again, just like the first precept. It's much, much broader, much more of a way of investigating, again, aspects of our lives where we take stuff. where we appropriate things which are not freely offered, not freely given. So it does imply that not stealing, but again, it's far broader, far richer, and far more exploratory, because it means, again, looking at the relationships in our lives where we take something, where we take something which isn't offered. The next one is a very interesting one, (laughs) because this usually goes under sexual misconduct. Well, actually, it doesn't, because in the original Pali, it implies something else. The word in Pali is kamesu, Um and the, what that means is sensual misconduct. Um, and it, usually, if you're going to have the sexual pardon, it, it's sensual and sexual misconduct. So again, like some, hopefully it's not something you're going to engage in here, but it means, again, looking at the way that we abuse our senses. The overstimulation which we can indulge ourselves in. Um, As you can see, they're not mutually exclusive because all of the precepts can interact. Um, For example, sensual misconduct might be overeating. It might be listening to too much television, radio, music. You know, the kind of plugged in syndrome that so many people seem to have these days, but it also implies sexual misconduct as well, but I think it 's again much, much broader when you hear it in sensual misconduct because there's so many different ways, a plethora of ways in the Western world in which we can overindulge our senses and engage in you know, kind of sensory overstimulation. Now, the next precept is, and this again hopefully won't affect you too much um, because you're in silence, is actually a precept about right speech. Um, It's not, I undertake a rule of training to refrain from false speech. And this is often extended, actually. You can get another precept version of this where it covers all harmful forms of speech. So false speech, harsh speech, divisive speech... An idle chatter. I always say to people when they hear that, is there much left to say? (laughs) If you cut out that lot. (laughs) Because it's a pretty big list, isn't it? You You know, false speech, well, what counts as false speech? It's not saying simply don't lie. That, again, is implied. But wherein does false speech lie? Does it also perhaps lie in over exaggerating something making that that story just that tiny little bit funnier uh, by exaggerating and distorting it slightly it implies not engaging in speech which is going to create enmity between people divisive speech, not speaking behind somebody's back harshly about them and also a very interesting one not engaging in idle chatter which is again something we so easily drop into you know, it's just chatter, idle talk, you know, speech which really doesn't do a lot. But, again, it means examining the quality of your speech acts. You know, to really, really begin to examine the quality of the spe- of your speech. In the, again, the training, and many of you will know there is the Eightfold Path, and the Eightfold Path has right speech as one of its central components. It's one of the most It's one of the primary ethical considerations on the Buddha's path to engage in correct speech, appropriate speech, actually, rather than right, if we translate it again properly, to engage in appropriate speech, to know what is appropriate to be said. So it means looking at the quality of your speech acts, because sometimes when we engage in idle chatter, it's not so idle. We might be trying to relax somebody, to make them feel a little bit more ease when they're tense. Is that idle chatter? Probably not it's probably doing something completely different so again it's kind of looking at the quality of those speech acts Um, because we're saturated in speech aren't we we're talking all the time you know even when you're sitting there with your eyes closed on a meditation cushion your thoughts are chattering away Uh, we even talk to ourselves in our sleep you notice that one so we're constantly sort of talking to ourselves you know so it's looking at the quality of that speech that's going on and then the final one which um, is about basically undertaking a rule of training to refraining from taking substances which disturb the balance of the mind and lead to heedlessness a wonderful old fashioned word isn't it that lead to heedlessness in other words misbehaviour and what I do when I generally have a board or something I line these all up one on top of the other and actually what it means is don't do the fifth because it might mean that you commit all of the above <laughs> because it becomes so easy under the influence of drugs and alcohol and things like that to engage in harming living beings, engaging in taking what is not offered, sexual and sensual misconduct and, of course, all the forms of speech which has been mentioned. So the Buddha's not just a prude. About this, he actually is very much trying to make us aware how often these substances lead us into bad forms of behavior. However, there is another factor to this, really, and this is me going to slightly move away from the precepts, but there's another factor to this, which is, of course, what we're trying to do coming to a center like this, a retreat center, or even in your daily practice, is to clarify the mind. To make the mind alert and awake and receptive. To make it a mind which can perhaps be more possessed of compassion and friendliness rather than the sort of enmities and natural arisings which we get, which come up, which are often divisive and very harsh (laughs) about ourselves and our relationships to the world. So if that's the goal of what we're doing when we're sitting doing our meditation, and I'll say some words about that in a minute, when we're sitting doing our meditation, actually to take these types of substances militates against the whole direction of meditation as a strategy, meditation as a procedure which hopefully is leading to clarification, leading to actually eventually, hopefully to the goal of what Buddhist practice is about, which is about waking up. That is what the goal is about. It's not about some big rosy ideal of enlightenment, which I'm never quite sure what that meant, but I'm very sure about what awakening is. In the sense that it's a challenge to us. And one of the main themes of this week is obviously about that path to awakening and awareness, mindfulness, meditation, as being certainly, if not the most important component, an essential component on this goal to awakening many of you will have heard me say some of those who have been on retreat with me before that actually the word in again Pali in Sanskrit, the word Buddha doesn't mean enlightened one, what it means is one who has awakened and that's I think a real challenge to us because in a sense what it's saying that word, there is a Buddha and there is us (laughs) is that actually we're sleepwalkers most of the time. Um, actually, you're wandering around in your sleep, keep bumping into the same things again and again and again. You know, With your eyes closed, you keep walking into the same lamppost and wondering why you're getting the same bruises. You know, so you're doing it again and again and again. So there's something clearly unawakened about much of ordinary life. We lead very unawakened lives in the sense that we don't see clearly. Um, We don't actually want to see clearly a lot of the time because some of the things that we are confronted with, we don't particularly want to know about. (laughs) There's really a case of not wanting to know going on. So when we hear this word Buddha or just awakened one, it's a challenge. It's a challenge to us all to actually engage in this process of waking ourselves up. And there's a phrase again that you find throughout the textual material that the Buddha speaks is waking up to the way things really are. That's the goal. To wake up to the way things really are. Not, I might add, the way you would like them to be. Because clearly we all look at life and our own lives and world situations and things like that and would like them to be other. However, we have to wake up to the way they are rather than just simply idealizing or romanticizing possibilities for a future which might never come. Now, some of the things that we're waking up to, you know, really, really beginning to perceive much more clearly, are fundamental facets that none of us can escape, They're absolutely irres- inescapable, such as. The starting point, really, which is impermanence. Something which is written into the warp and woof of all life. Everything is impermanent, so says the Buddha. Well, the Buddha's not the first one to say that. You know, many thinkers, ancient Greek thinkers, said the same, similar things as well. Heraclitus, the uh, Greek philosopher, once said, you never step into the same river twice. A student of his actually said, you never step into the same river Once. because it's always changing, it's always moving. Life is a flow, life is a continuous flow, forever changing, it's mutable, evanescent, um, and there's no way we can generally obstruct the flow of change. No matter how much we kick and rail against it, um, change will go on. And as I often say at the beginning of retreats, I'm going to be no different in this retreat, I'm going to say it again, actually the concept of impermanence is not a difficult one to get your head around you know and um, we can all sort of nod sagely and go mm, yes everything's changing yeah. until you something breaks on you or something gets lost something gets stolen then you suddenly realize no i don't understand impermanence at all because i expected it to be around when i wanted it um things have a habit of breaking on you don't they not working i, I always tend to think when when I, particularly when I was working in universities, that one thing photocopiers were basically designed for was to break down, <laughs> usually before a lecture when you needed all the notes to give to the students. You know, that's what they were really designed for. Um, the ghost story writer, M. R. James, had a wonderful term for this. He called it the malice of inanimate objects. <laughs> There's something very malicious about the way they don't work for you when you need them. Joking aside, though, impermanence is written into the warp and woof of life, as I say. It's something which is inescapable. It's something, actually, which is actually written into our own lives because it means that we are changing, too. Um, People around us are changing. Partners are changing. Parents are changing. Children are changing. Everything around us is changing. Sometimes we embrace change because it's what we want, you know, if you're in a bad situation and it changes, you say, that's good. If you're in a good situation and it changes for the bad, you say, that's bad. You know, So actually not all change is perceived as bad because some of it is to our benefit. A lot of the change that we don't want, and actually that's the majority of it, we can spend our lives trying to avoid it, the kind of changes that we, you know, that we desperately try to avoid, those are the ones that usually catch up with us. Those are the ones that we usually find ourselves... Um, being involved in these kinds of changes so change is there it's an its immutable part of life it's ubiquitous throughout the whole of our existence And of course the one thing that's ultimately going to change and go out of existence is ourselves yeah? that's the one thing that's really going to happen this is our finitude this is our kind of this is our terminal illness moving away from wherever we are, whatever age we are, towards something which is inevitable, our own distinct change which results in death. So we can't avoid it. We can't avoid change. We can't avoid what is going on around us in the world that impinges on us. What Hamlet refers to as the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune. These are constantly happening to us. We cannot avoid them. So, what do we do? If we can't avoid them, and often we're trying to shore up our lives in terms of something which is more permanent, there is a mismatch. I want something permanent and the world is impermanent. As you can clearly see, there's a kind of cognitive dissonance between that, between what I want and what is actually happening. The way I want things to be, that's why I said this is not about actually wanting to be in a particular way, but actually owning up to how they are, and actually owning up to how they are is in the most basic element, is probably change, is probably this notion of impermanence. Nothing is remaining the same, not even ourselves, it's good news actually, isn't it, you know, we're not remaining the same, it means even those kind of miseries and depressions and sadnesses and things like that won't remain the same. They will change. Um, But it also means on the other hand that even our joys won't stay around. They will also change too. So life is one process of this waxing and waning of elements, some of which we want to hold on to, such as good things like joy and happiness and that, and some things which we don't particularly want to be around for us, such as the kind of elements of sadness and depression, you know, the elements of of tragedy, often that tinge you know, that tinge and touch lives. These are the kinds of things we don't want. Yet you know, there's nothing in the contract that says we get what we want and avoid what we don't want. There's nothing in the contract of life to say that. So we get both. You know, we get the joys and the happinesses, but we also get the sadnesses and the tragedies with life. And they both change. They both won't remain the same. However, this process of trying to manipulate and hold on to one whilst avoiding the other, of course, is very tenuous. You can do it for so long, um, but then it's a bit like a sort of house built on sand. Eventually, it will come crumbling down. It will come crashing down because any sense... Of security and certainty and stability is actually extremely, as I say, tenuous. It's not going to remain the same. It's going to change, inevitably. So, certainties that we try to hold on to, you know, certainties about others that are around us. Yeah, the worst thing a partner can ever do on you is change. You know, know, who are you today? (laughs) You've changed on me. Um, So, There is this whole process of trying to create certainties, trying to create stability, something that we can hold on to. Now that is fraught with failure. Um, We'll be reflecting more on this as we go through the week. But this is fraught with failure and gives rise inevitably to something which, again... Um, you're a very mixed group so some of you will know about this and others will probably not know about it something that generally gets translated in popular books on Buddhism is suffering it gives rise to suffering well actually it gives rise to a tremendous dissatisfaction with the way life is that's what it gives rise to not so much suffering the word which is used again and again and again in Pali texts is the word dukkha the word dukkha is this word that's usually translated as suffering, but is actually far more of a spectrum term. So it covers all of our dissatisfactions in life. Everything that's not happening that you want to happen. You know, Being in places where you don't want to be with people you don't want to be with. Um, becoming aware, for example, that joy is vanishing too. All of this in a sense, is is what is termed dukkha. So it's this tremendous sense of the dissatisfaction that runs through life. It's running through life. Again, it's woven into the fabric of the way that we live our lives. I mean, dukkha is a wonderful starting point, actually, for investigation. It's a starting point, I think, for many of us, perhaps even being in places like this, is that we sense that something isn't quite right in our lives, that you know things we're trying to hold on to, we just can't hold on to. Constantly irritated. Um, that sense of irritation is very, very much there. One of my early teachers always said to me, he said this process of dukkha was not like something sharp and painful. He said it was like slowly rubbing your arm against a brick wall. Yeah. Doesn't become, it's not terribly painful when you start off doing it. The more you're engaging it, the more painful it becomes. And I think this is a very good image, if you just kind of hold on to that image for a second, it's this image of moving your arm around in circles is actually what we're engaging in a lot of time. Circular behaviour, running around in circles, doing the same things, uh, again and again and again and again. Um, there was a famous English novelist called Lawrence Dorrell who once said, the only thing we learn from history is that we don't learn anything from history. And I think the same is true of personal lives. You know, The thing we probably don't learn in terms of our own personal histories is anything from our own personal history. So we keep on making the same mistakes again and again and again. Not identically, but similarly. They have a similar tone to them. I don't know if there's you've ever, have you ever had the experience of déjà vu, you know, saying to yourself, why am I doing this again? You know, what's going on here? I was doing this 20 years ago or however long ago. And I'm still doing it now. And it's still causing the same problems as it did then. Because we're simply not learning. We get caught in patterns of repetition. Repetitive behavior. And even our dissatisfactions become repetitive. They actually get become quite stale in the end. Something you see quite often when we sit and engage in this process we call meditation... Is these patterns coming up again and again and again? There's a wonderful word in Pali to describe this. It's a word actually which translates as spreading out, um, which is something called papancha, the way the mind will take something and spread it out um, almost obsessionally. And one of the actual cognate terms to this is also one which means literally that obsession. We get obsessed by certain things and if you note about obsession it comes back again and again and again the same old obsessions, the same old fears, the same old anxieties are often raising themselves again and again and again and again this is actually the Buddha's starting point this is the starting point for the investigation which becomes called Buddhism Um, it's a word I actually really dislike the word Buddhism Um, Literally, if you translated that, the word Buddhism, it would mean wake upism. <laughs> Which actually sounds better to me than Buddhism. Buddhism sounds like a sort of religious phenomena. Wake upism doesn't. You know, it's actually telling us about a task. And the task, really, in relationship to this dukkha, is let's understand how it comes about. Let's see how we find ourselves repeating things because we bring the same psychological, emotional conditions to experience again and again and again means we get the same kinds of irritations the same kinds of dissatisfactions again and again and again I essay is a spectrum word and it covers many, many phenomena some of those phenomena can be things like chronic pain and by its very nature chronic pain is something you're not going to avoid yeah. but it can be just part of you know, the fact that we live this corporeal existence we have this human body so if I bump into something or I cut myself I feel pain and actually again in the, in the original languages in Pali it's called dukkha dukkata which actually means the pain of pain and that we can't avoid It's part of our hard wiring you know, the fact that we experience these things. The Buddha was, never really, it was much more realistic than to think that you could do away with the way the body is wired, the way the body experiences things. But what we can do something about, and this is the beginning of the investigation, is all those add-on extras that we bring to simple experiences. There is change, and then there is something that we add on to it which is the resistance to change, the resentment about change, the anger, the irritation, whatever the mental component that you perhaps personally find yourself adding to things when they occur. We can have the pain of cutting ourselves. There's one pain, and now we get another, because it's why am I selected out of the universe to cut myself? Ever had that feeling? You go, well, okay. Why have I been selected for this? As if you're somehow unique here. Now the Buddha actually likened this. He said, not only do you have a first dart or arrow, which is the very thing that happens to you, the, you know, the pain, of the physical pain, if I cut myself or bump into something and hurt myself and bruise myself, or something changing in our lives that I can have no influence over whatsoever, not only do we have that, but we immediately throw in a second dart. We throw in a second arrow to this, causing ourselves even more pain. So it's like putting whatever's happening to us under a magnifying glass. So it's actually magnified and blown up. I often liken this to a kind of toothache syndrome. You know when you've got toothache or you've got a cavity or something like that, you know, you keep proving to yourself just how painful it is by going sticking your tongue in it or doing whatever it is. You know, and just oh that really hurts. God, that really does hurt. And that's what we're doing often in ordinary life. Not only have we got the what's happened, now we're just trying to prove to ourselves just how painful it really is by actually adding the second component to it. So, really, this is, I I think this is almost a sort of, I don't know, an organic message here. How do you like your experience of life, with or without additives? (laughs) Because we don't actually have to have the additives. And this isn't what the Buddha is really talking about. It's not saying we can do anything about the primal thing, be it change or be it just physical pain. We can't do anything about that. But we can certainly do something about the mind which then grasps that and then does something with it, often causing ourselves yet more pain. You know, so there is actually a dukkha, which is not just associated with the change, but to our experience of change, to the way that the mind resists it, and the tension and the feeling of disease that often grows up for us in that resistance process. So there's something actually radical to this message it's a kind of message often of radical acceptance of life's difficulty that life is difficult it's not easy at all and again there's nowhere in any contract ever written about life that said it's going to be easy you know it's a series of often challenges and difficulties that we have But, because of various things I'm going to go into over the week, we keep on exacerbating the problem. We keep on making it more painful for ourselves than it is already. So we keep on adding components into experience which exacerbate the problem, don't diminish the problem. I'll just say I always do this, but I think it's quite important to do it just to get you to reflect on it because this word dukkha that I keep referring to is not just suffering, and I really, really do want you to hear that. It's the totality of everything you're dissatisfied with in your life. Things that have happened in the past, things that you might want to avoid in the future, but it might just be little things like my cushion isn't very comfortable. (laughs) Or... Something of that sort, very minor. Or it's a little bit too cold in here, or a little bit too hot, or a little bit this way, or a little bit the other. I've got the perfect thing I wanted, but it's not the right (laughs) colour. You know, all of these things that somehow just make life a little bit more difficult for us here. All of that is dukkha. All of that is dukkha. In, again, and it's useful sometimes just to reflect on this, that in the etymology of the word in... Again, in Pali and Sanskrit, the word dukkha is formed out of two components. One which is du, du which means unpleasant. It can also mean dirty. can mean painful. And then ka, which means space. So the literal meaning of this word is an unpleasant or dirty space. Yeah. I think that works really well in English. because you know, often we refer to this is not a nice place to be in. You know, This is kind of has a kind of grubby feel to it in a way and often life is like that one other meaning of this word was it referred to the hole in a wheel which is you know the old wheels that would have used in ancient India and the hole in the wheel was what the axle fitted into and that hole was filled with dirt and grease and grit and it went round and round and round Um, and that was likened to the experience of life that there was a circularity to it. Often things coming back again and again and again. Almost through this unlearning, you know, this way of not learning through our experience, but just trying to repeat the same things. Again, now there's reasons for this. The Buddha spends a long time, um, as do many Buddhist teachers, even in the contemporary world, diagnosing the problem. Because unless we get the problem clear, how can we ever escape the phenomena of this duckering process? I'm turning it into a verb. This is what we're doing, we're duckering, Grumbling and grouching and basically moving our way through life. Not entirely, I'm kind of joking about this slightly. But we're often doing this on a day-to-day, sometimes hour-to-hour, minute-to-minute basis. Things are not quite right. Right for us now. What is the easier to change, the world or your mind? <laughs> you know, we can grouch about all kinds of things that are going on in the world, and grouching about them won't have one effect whatsoever. I had a very interesting phenomenon this year. We, uh, I was teaching a retreat which literally started on the day after the general election. Um, so people went into retreat on that day not knowing who the government was going to be. <laughs> and the thing I tried to make very clear about it, what they thought about it didn't matter one jot. You know, it was going to be what it was going to be. You know, by the time they came out of retreat, it had been, you know, been solved. But often we think you know, it's just simply by knowing about something we can change it. Yeah, this is an illusion that we're often under. You know, the world is not going to change for you. you know, but what we can do is change our minds in relationship to the world. So that the things that happen to us are things that happen to us. They don't have to inevitably become dukkha. They don't have to become this dissatisfaction, this unsatisfactoriness, this even suffering that we can generate for ourselves. So the kind of things that we're talking about and we'll be examining in this Path to Awakening over this, over this week, awareness and the Path to Awakening, is an awareness which allows us to see that, to see how we're implicated in causing our own problems. Not to say that stuff doesn't happen to you, of course stuff happens to us. But often we, as I've implied by using that metaphor that the Buddha used, we often make it much, much worse by adding that second dart, by adding that second arrow into the experience. As I suggested earlier on, the experience alone is often painful enough in itself. Let alone as adding this way of magnifying it or increasing the pain by putting this second arrow into our experience. So the Buddha is suggesting that we have direct ways that we can deal with, we can see this in operation in our daily lives by bringing awareness, bringing the spotlight of awareness to shine into our lives and to become aware when I'm falling back into something which we find so easy, which is habit. Just keep on falling back into habit again and again. It's like our default option, isn't it? You know, we just keep falling into the habit as the default. If I can't think of what to do, I just go back onto habit. And so we can shine a light into this. We can actually shine the light of awareness into the problems that we create for ourselves. Thus, being able to move away to not generate the kinds of problems that we have often. The ones that we feel stuck in, the ones that we feel trapped in, the anxieties, the depressions, the feelings that sometimes overwhelm us. These don't have to be all another source of dukkha. They can be seen for what they are. One thing that we learn, perhaps through meditation, and this is going to be something we're going to explore. It is, for example, that thoughts are not your enemies. Thoughts are just thoughts. They arise. There's a very simple maxim that Buddha uses again and again and again throughout the texts. One that's useful to take on board things arise and they pass away. There's no better exemplification of that than, of course, thoughts. Notice what happens with thoughts. Even if you don't try to even concentrate the mind, thoughts will arise and they will pass away. And they will arise and they will pass away. Sometimes they will come back, but then again they will arise and they will pass away. So even if it's the most spellbinding, attractive thought, you've got to go through a lot to hold on to it. Because it will arise and it will pass away. Now to see this process of arising, it actually really doesn't matter what the content is. Be that, as I say, the most gripping, spellbinding thought that you might possibly have, or the most repulsive thought that you might ever have in your life. It will simply arise and it will pass away. Actually, I think this is what thoughts ought to have, really. A little label. Just saying, just passing through. (laughs) Because they're not really going to stick. But we have a problem in that we tend to over-identify with what we think. We over-identify and we hold on and we think that the thoughts are us. Well, actually, they're not. It's a very simple message, a very simple message, that the thoughts are not what or who we are. Thoughts are just thoughts and they arise and they pass away. So we start to see this. This is the part of the spotlight of awareness that we bring into the process of being able to see that, to see that process, that nothing, even in our thought world, remains the same. Ourselves don't remain the same. Those around us don't remain the same. Everything is in the process of arising and passing away. Living with that awareness written large, really, really large, in other words, living a life which is based and balanced in equanimity is actually what the Buddha means by the awakening experience. A life which is balanced. Now he a synonym for it in some other texts, which is a synonym for this process of equanimity, which literally means in the middleness. Not being swayed in any direction by life's pains or by life's joys. It doesn't mean that you're kind of, kind of fence-sitting, deadened to the world. It's just that I'm not going to try and run away every time something bad happens. I'm not going to try and cling to something good when it happens. That the mind is balanced. It's receptive, it's responsive. Yet it's not being pushed and pulled as often our minds are in daily life in one or other direction, constantly. Sometimes it's a little experiment, you can watch this process. Here's the object that you want, the object of craving. There you are, like Pavlov's dogs, just wanting it. And here's something you don't want. You try and avoid it as quickly as possible. Yeah. And then you can see that going on throughout the day. Just watching the mind being pushed and pulled in either of those directions. This balance or equanimity is, in a sense, the understanding that we don't have to live like that. Now, in some traditions, that experience is interpreted as something, a word that actually has moved into English, usually in Sanskrit form, which is nirvana. Well, actually, it sounds like a noun, but it isn't. It's a verb. It's a verb, so it's nirvanaring. So we're doing it. You're living an experience which is an awakened experience. Now that's, for most of us, quite far off, but we see glimpses of it when the mind isn't swayed, when I'm not automatically reacting, when I'm not automatically putting that second dart into experience. The training for that is learning to become more and more aware. But awareness isn't everything. That awareness has to to also be tinged with a friendliness and a compassion to what is seen. Be that another person or yourself. So something we learn to develop within this process of developing awareness is a basic genuine friendliness towards ourselves and towards others. Out of that soil can grow things like compassion. can also grow joy and ultimately equanimity. So that awareness has to be tinged with that. Otherwise the awareness itself can be very cold. So this is a warm awareness. It's warm and friendly. And it has a friendliness, but not a clinging to what is seen. And that we'll examine through the week. So I'm going to pick up on many of those themes I've touched on in different ways in the Dharma talks in the evening and sometimes in the instructions in the morning and as we go through the day. Um, But the process we'll be engaging in tomorrow, we're going to engage in doing some concentration. Let's get the minds settled to then start to use and develop awareness in a particular way of starting to look at some very, very basic things. So tomorrow, and the instructions tomorrow morning, were devoted to concentration practices. Just getting the mind settled, a little bit calmer, perhaps a little bit more focused. I can't guarantee a lot in one day. But... <laughs> We might start to feel that, just that feeling a little bit more even and a little bit more stable to then use that as a springboard for the investigations I want to, to engage in for the rest of the week, which are aimed at developing awareness and awareness opening up that path to awakening. I'll just pause there for a second and just see if there's any questions and then we'll finish off on a short meditation just to finish the evening. Any comments, questions? Doesn't matter. I'm, yeah. Just something around um, the thoughts rising and passing away, mm-hmm. but at the same time being the obsession and the kind of coming on sometimes. to Thoughts. So Will we also be exploring how to help thoughts pass? Um, yes. Than, thoughts do stick around. I think you know. Do those old things they used to use to catch flies on, like the you know, fly paper. That's what our minds are usually like. They're like flypaper minds, because actually thoughts do get stuck and we start to identify them and we start to identify them as being us. I'll talk quite a lot about that and actually offer some practical stuff around that, because this is really this is the real nub of what we're doing here, is learning to develop a mind which doesn't have that quality of obsession, that quality of getting stuck in certain places. One of the things you probably notice even when you do have that is that it literally goes round in circles. Yeah. Have you noticed when, you, for example, you have an emotional problem, you know, any kind of emotional problem, actually to try and think your way out of it, you just dig yourself a deeper hole with it. You know, so you can't get yourself out of this. What you have to do is learn to see. But it's learning to seeing, as I am saying, is very much t- touch with warmth, with a kind of love and friendliness towards it. And actually, if you really acknowledge something fully, I'm starting really to talk about it here, but if you start to acknowledge something fully, then it's much less likely to return if it's been fully seen and fully acknowledged. So actually, one of the things we'll be engaging in is actually this process of acknowledging, acknowledging and seeing but letting go. But letting go here is, in a sense, isn't volitional. I'm not saying to myself, I've got to let go, I've got to let go, because what does that do? It has a complete opposite effect, doesn't it? It's like telling somebody to relax. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, who tells somebody to relax? They go, relax. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> telling somebody to let go is also, is also the same as this. It's actually allowing the letting go process to start to occur. And I'll be talking more about that and, and giving some practical advice about it too.